Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores. Welcome to The Outsiders. I'm Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. This is podcast number 29. Robin, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm raring to go, dying to get on to our topics and uh, looking forward to our chat with Edmonton icon, Dave Jamison. So clearly, gonna be good. clearly the money got to you to call him that. And I haven't received my check yet from him, but I'm sure we will. And I'm with you. I'm looking forward to talking to Dave Jamison, who not only did an unbelievable job in public relations and media relations with the Edmonton Eskimos for a long time. We'll ask him how long, coming up in a little bit. But now has a, a show on TSN 1260. Mm-hmm. And Dave does a fabulous job. He's got a really dry UK or British sense of humor. He uh, Sometimes he's misunderstood because of his sense of humor. I get it. And, and I love the dryness of his, uh, of his wit. So we're looking very much forward to talking to JMO coming up in a few minutes. All right, let's get to things. TSN's Frank Cervelli is saying today that NHL training camps will probably get going the middle of January now, which means the kickoff of a season wouldn't happen until February. So now people are getting concerned, well, maybe... Maybe this isn't going to happen here. That's that's putting a lot of games into a short span of time, don't you think? Well, I tell you, if they want to get back to anything resembling normalcy in, ter- in terms of timeline, if you're talking, let's say, February, March, April, if you go May, that's four months. You can play 60 games, but now you're at the end of May uh, before you get into playoffs. So, it's starting to push it. You know, do you go, do we pivot on a 48-game season if it starts really late? We've played them before because we've had to. And you can get back towards some normalcy in timetable where you're not having playoff hockey uh, at the time when you're generally uh, starting training camp. So do you shorten up this season? Um, is it any less legitimate than a 48-game season in in past years when uh, labor disruptions have shortened things up. I wonder if they look at that and bring it down from the 60-game sort of level we've, we've heard before. What about an all-Canadian division? We keep hearing about this. I like the basis of that. What I don't like is the time zone issues. I, I would mm-hmm. rather watch a later game at 8 o'clock off the West Coast in the province of Alberta then watch a five o'clock start that would be emanating from Ontario or Quebec. So the time zone thing is a bit of an issue for me. But, uh, you know, I also like watching, well, we're based in Edmonton. So it's fun to watch the Edmonton Oilers, the Calgary Flames, take on every team at least twice, a home and away. I like seeing the U.S. teams. I don't know if I'm going to want a steady diet of Toronto Maple Leafs or Montreal Canadiens, Ottawa Senators, whatever. But I don't know. you have a thought on that? Well, I mean, I don't know why we need a Canadian division. Um, everybody knows the Toronto Maple Leafs are the best Canadian team. I mean, <laughs> um, you know what? I like the idea of it, but in practical uh, terms, Bryn, I don't know if it works. And that's largely because uh, like you touched on, how do you work the time zones? Now, are we going to be playing in empty buildings again? If it's empty buildings, that's a whole other problem. But you can tweak the time zones then because you can tweak when you start. But it doesn't have to be the traditional, okay, load up the kids after supper, or go to the game and have supper and then walk over to the rink. So it's going to depend how the setup is. Um I just think that long-term, they need to do something because there is going to be a long-term. As bad as things have been, the NHL isn't going to go away. But I think you've got to try and get back on um, that timeline where you're seeing you know, the guys show up back into town in 
late August to skate in their various camps with their instructors that they like. Um, you go to training camp in September and you get started in October. I don't know how you get started in October um, if you're going to try and play 60 games when you're not starting until February. It's virtually impossible. The other thing, too, and there's going to be some people who say, well, what do you care about the time zones, really? And it's one thing to sell tickets for fans to sit in the seats. So obviously that's important. But it's also important from a marketing standpoint. If you're going out and you're selling Uh advertising, big money advertising, a lot of, and this is why you always get Toronto or Montreal on that five o'clock game on a Saturday, because that's the biggest Mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle, right? You're drawing the fan bases out of the two biggest cities in the country. And then why is, why is Vancouver generally the team that they won in the eight o'clock start, as opposed to an Edmonton Calgary battle? Well, because Vancouver mm-hmm. is bigger. So you're trying to get the biggest piece of the pie from a marketing and advertising standpoint. I get that, but I don't know. I, well, we'll see. I, I, it scares me to hear that it might be February to start now because I think I, I'm with you. You're going to be pushing it too late. And if there's one thing we learned a little bit about the bubble from a TV perspective, the audience became very regionalized. If your team was out, yeah. you were out. And you were out golfing. You were out barbecuing. You were out mowing the lawn. There's a lot of great reasons to be playing the NHL season during the winter months. Hey, I, I, I got to touch on something this weekend. Phil Mickelson wins on the senior tour. Did you see this at all? Yes, I did. He, uh, he finished ahead of uh, uh, none other than uh, Mike Weir, who's been in uh, uh, laying low since he won the Masters. Let's put it that way. Um, nice to see Mike Weir back on the golf course. But striking to see Phil Mickelson in, you know, they call it the uh, champions tour, but yes. it's the old guys tour. Yeah. And man, time flies. Phil Mickelson, it seems like yesterday, maybe it shows our age that Mickelson was the young up and comer. Now I know some years have passed since then, but really the champions tour for Phil Mickelson, unbelievable. He will mop the floor with those guys in his first couple of years because he's still playing and winning on the PGA Tour. Yeah, I noticed he also did a shout-out to Mike Weir. We have the Masters coming up shortly. You know who we got to get on? we got to get Cam Cole on. Because uh, Cam's been to a a bunch of Masters and has done great Masters-like writing, and now he's retired. But I'd love to get Cam on to talk a little Masters golf, but it's coming up quickly, and Phil obviously is trying to get into the groove. I think it's a smart move by him. To uh, to head there, will Tiger go to that tour at some point? Do you think? And would he do the exact same havoc, create the same kind of havoc that Phil could possibly? Oh, sure do? he would. Yeah. Well, I mean, Tiger is going to be. Uh, Tiger will win everything he plays on that tour um, because, again, when the young guys come up, whether you look in past years like a Jim Furyk and guys like that, you know, it's those guys in their first five years of eligibility that really win uh, the tournaments, especially truly great golfers. I'm not putting Furyk in that category, but like a Mickelson, who's going to beat Phil Mickelson on the seniors tour right now? I can't think of a lot of guys. I would think that he, he, he said he was using it as a tune up and you, you summed it up perfectly there. So anyway, I just, it was, it was kind of fun to watch Phil's shout out to Mike said how much he enjoyed playing with him, another Masters tournament winner. So, uh, And good for Mike to be able to kind of turn things around yep. as well. I noticed, and I've never had any dealings with the man, but I respect him from what I've written, or what I've read that he's written. And he passed away at the grand age of 100. His name was Sid Hartman, a longtime writer in the Minneapolis area and broadcaster. Your thoughts on mm-hmm. Sid passing and what a great career this guy had. He covered it all. He did, and I only saw him in the press box a couple times, of course, because I was not there covering the team uh, in the old Minnesota North Star days. But the second time around with the Minnesota Wild out in St. Paul. Now, um I didn't know the man, but I tell you what, when I read what's being said about him and to see that he had a column 
in the paper on the day he passed away uh, tells you something about the guy. Um, working and writing when you're 100 years old, that's absolutely amazing. Um, most of the what I know about Sid Hartman, I've read from people like uh, Mike Russo, who's at The Athletic now out of uh, uh, Minnesota, and guys who are actually older than I am. Because you got to remember, we're talking, well, Hartman is 40 years older than you and I, and we yeah. consider ourselves a bit uh, gray in the game. So amazing career. Not only that, and I talked about him broadcasting at WCCO in the, uh, in the Twin Cities area, but he goes back to when the Twins came into being. The, the, the mm-hmm. Minneapolis Lakers, not the Los Angeles Lakers. Yeah. You know, you could talk about the Vikings and how close he was with Bud Grant, one of the all-time coaching legends. It's just, and then you mentioned Minnesota North Stars and, and uh, also the competitiveness between the Twin Cities. And I didn't realize how intense it was, but I, I did some back reading on some articles, and it, it's always been competitive between Minneapolis and St. Paul. But anyway, 100 is a great life to live, and he filled it with yes. some great, great memories. Okay, the World Series is set. We have the Los Angeles Dodgers taking on the Tampa Bay Rays. I liked it better when they were the Devil Rays, but that's just me. But if this game and this series wasn't being played where it's going to be played, and that's right smack in the middle of the country in Dallas or in uh, in the Fort Worth area. This would be mm-hmm. a coast-to-coaster. This would have been a tough series to cover. You'd be flying back and forth all the time. Now it's all just in one central spot. I tell you, it's, it's, I would prefer the coast-to-coast thing, but that's not the uh, era we live in right now. Um, you know, it's a it's a great excuse for, and again, this has changed as well, for the tailgating, for the fan spectacle uh, under normal circumstances. But as far as the teams go, three out of four years, the Dodgers are in it. Um, I still think of Tampa Bay as a brand new team, even though some years have passed. It's, it's just you're taking one of the oldest franchises with one of the newer ones. Um It'll be fun. I tell you what, though, and I don't know if it's the same for you, Brent. It snuck up on me a little bit. And this is somebody, I mean, I covered baseball for the Edmonton Journal for many years. But again, in the times we're living in, um, there just hasn't been that much buzz to me, at least. If there has been, I've missed it. So the buildup's not there. But whenever the Dodgers are there, as somebody who wandered through Dodger town back in the day and all the little bungalows with the blue awnings down in Florida. Um, anytime the Dodgers are in, not that they're my team. I'm certainly interested. Let's also talk about Tampa, that Tampa Bay area. Is this becoming like the city of champs? They just won a Stanley cup championship. Now their baseball team is into the world series. And then you got Tom Brady leading, leading the Buccaneers to, uh, to to who knows what at, at his glorious age that Tampa area has got a lot of talk to has got a lot to talk about when it comes to sports right now well absolutely I mean do you think they'll maybe take the city of champions moniker that uh, well I think uh, we used to have hanging on I, I think there's four cities in North America that use the city of champions thing but the Edmonton one was never designed uh, for sports. The City no. of Champions logo or moniker came out of uh, the Black Friday tornado issue and how people kind of rallied around. The mayor at that mm-hmm. time was Lawrence Decor, and he said, the way people have pulled together, this is really a City of Champions. And, it, it you know, I at that time, the Eskimos and the Oilers were on pretty good runs, but it was... Uh, yes. Until Lawrence DeCord proclaimed it as the city of champions, talking about the people who inhabit the city. It never was that. But you and I both know Inglewood in California, where the old fabulous form was, was also uh, calling themselves the city of champs. They had a few championships mm-hmm. go through the form. But, you know, call yourself whatever you want, as far as I'm concerned. But I just think in Tampa right now, it must be an exciting time as a fan. The only thing they can't do is go to the games. Yeah, which which uh, really sucks. And yeah, it's true. You can call it whatever you want because I tell you what, you Bryn, you know this as well as I do. 
the fabulous forum was really not, wasn't that fabulous. And, no, it was not <laughs> a fabulous place. Uh, met some interesting people there. I ran into Sly Stallone on a on a stairwell. He at the uh-huh. at the forum, and I. Uh, it's funny when I was broadcasting with the Winnipeg Jess and Kurt Keelback, who was the play by play on on CKY Radio in Winnipeg. And during the intermission, I had to hit the washroom. And uh, so there's a kind of a back doorway to get mm-hmm. uh, to get into the bathroom in the king's office. And I remember there was somebody in there, and I'm going, geez, I got to get going here. Not only do I have to get going, but I got to get going here because I got to be back on the broadcast. Somebody was in there, and I just wanted to hammer on the back of that door and say, I got to get in there. I got to get in there. You know who walked out? It was, uh, oh, I've gone blank on her name. She played the wife of Bob Newhart on the Newhart. Mary Fran. Was it Mary? Not Mary Fran? Yeah, she, she was the wife of Bob Newhart on the Newhart show, the second one. I know who you mean. Short, yeah, I know short who you mean. woman who looked great in sweaters. That was the big joke all the time. She was. <laughs> and she just walked out of the bathroom. Oh, I'm so sorry. And what was I going to say? You know, but it, the only thing fabulous about the fabulous form was that there were some fabulous Hollywood celebrities there. And we were at playoff games and. Jack Nicholson was there and uh-huh. I, I, there was, you know, there was, I think Ronald Reagan was at one of the games and, and I, I don't know if he was the governor. I think he might've been president at that point, but it was, it really was kind of dumpy, wasn't it? And who was the, who was the old oiler who took his coconut off the uh, underhang near the bench? I think it was Lee Fogel and I may be wrong, but all I, all, all I know given my coconut I did the exact same thing. You walk out, and you st- if you stand up too early, you take the melon off the uh, floor part that's been folded up into the into the stands. And I did exactly the same thing. Now, you know what? It was n- there was nothing fabulous about the forum except the name. But hey, a lot of great moments there. But no, not a great building. This week, Joe Buck of Fox Sports is going to do something that's never been done. I'm surprised he hasn't done it, actually. But he's going to do seven broadcasts on seven nights. You want to talk about the go-to guy for Fox Sports. He's going to be doing the World Series games and and I think two NFL broadcasts in that span. That's a lot of broadcasting for a guy who takes a lot of heat, and I don't quite get that. I I, I don't know if it's the way he presents himself, but I, I think Joe Buck does a, a remarkable job of broadcasting almost every sport. I don't like him doing golf, but I don't like Fox doing golf. But doing seven games in seven nights, that's a workhorse. Well, I hope he's got a throat lozenge deal with somebody because yeah. uh, that's a lot That's a lot of yak, and that'll wear out the voice. But, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know what, there's another one of the guys, uh, you know, you talk about media guys who who uh, set a standard some people can take Joe Buck. Some people are willing to leave him. But uh, a pretty solid career. And uh, this stint of uh, all these games in a short time, uh, if it unfolds that way, that'll really be something. At last report, he draws a salary of $7 million U.S. per year. So he's doing okay for himself. The I big, think so. The big news this morning when we woke up is the announcement of the retirement of Mike Emmerich, Doc Emmerich as he's referred to by so many of us. You want to talk about a guy who his career has been unbelievable in the National Hockey League. He's done over he's done over 3,750 games. I don't know how many yep. Stanley Cup finals he's done. And as great a broadcaster as he is, as he is, he's even a better person if you get a chance if you've ever had a chance to meet him. But man, what a career for for Doc. Unbelievable. Well, 47 seasons of hockey, and I actually think it was, it may be that many uh, cup finals, Brent. I wouldn't swear to it, but I was reading quickly what I saw the news today. Uh, Mike Emmerich didn't get to see him as often as we'd like being in the East, uh, but saw him whenever we were in Jersey. I know he did stints in Philly and, and stints with the Rangers as well as before he'd, he'd worked his way up through the minor leagues. But what a, yeah, what a career. And, you know, based on what people have said, um, it certainly is the same as what I saw uh, with Mike in the handful of times I'd see him in and around, uh, you know, the pregame meal in Jersey, uh, 
the, the press box, uh, which, as you recall, was uh, in the seats uh, in the old uh, Meadowlands. Um, wonderful man, wonderful career. And um, one of those guys who I guess sometimes you wonder why he hasn't stepped away sooner because uh, he's, he's had nothing to prove for the longest time. But given how good he was at the game, he was always understated. He was always uh, – uh, he wasn't a yell-at-you kind of guy. Um, you know, w- once he does step away, which starts now, uh, people are going to miss him for sure. 47 seasons calling professional hockey. He's broadcast yeah. 45 game sevens, 22 Stanley Cup finals, 14 mm-hmm. NHL All-Star games, six Olympics, including the golden goal that Sidney Crosby scored. But there's only one doc. And he's pretty fantastic. Coming up at the end of our podcast today, he did an essay. And uh, there's Stephen Brunt's probably the best example here in Canada. Does wonderful work on these essays. You're going to hear from the NBC site Doc Emmerich's essay to kind of wrap up his career. That'll be right at the end of this podcast. Okay, before we dash away and then come back with Dave Jamison from TSN 1260, Big shout-out to everybody at the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. They're our sponsor. Mm-hmm. And uh, just chatting with Brent over the weekend, everybody's really excited about things. The real estate market in Edmonton seems to be coming around a little bit, which is great to hear. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that that they do so well at uh, the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City is uh, – they, they really want to try to keep those home values exactly where they should be at this at this point. A lot of people are banking on their homes in more ways than one. But uh, the one of the things that they always talk about is the three Ps of real estate sales. You put up a sign, you put it on MLS, and then you pray that somebody calls. And the Macintosh Group, well, they, they add a fourth P, and that P is plan to make sure that you've got a great plan in place. That way you can sell your house for the most amount of money in the least amount of time. That's what everybody's looking for. So just get a hold of Brent. He's been selling homes in the Edmonton area since 1998, and his team of agents can help you out with the sale of your home. Also, Brent and I are now doing a podcast, and it's called Just Sold with Brent McIntosh. It's on all the ah. ear candy sites. So Just Sold with Brent McIntosh. So Give it a listen. They they would love that. And if you uh, if you want to reach them, it's real simple. It's the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. Check them out online at macintoshgroup.ca, or you can give them a call directly at 780-464-0075. And when you do get a hold of them, make sure that you tell them that the outsiders told you to, to give them a shout. That way everybody kind of looks after one another. And the other thing, too, not only it would it be handy if you retweeted their podcast, if you're sending messaging out on Twitter, do the same for our podcast as well. That's a huge thing. Yes. Okay, you ready for JMO coming up? Oh, absolutely. Let's get after him. I got to say something that this guy, our guest, puts on one hell of a show on TSN 1260. I know he does it from the heart, not for the cash. Yes. Right. No, no, no. Dave Jameson is joining us on The Outsiders today. Jamo, how you doing? Uh, Very good. It's, uh, this is a lot of fun to, uh, to be with you guys. And I've, uh, seen some of the previous podcasts and me following Chris Cuthbert is like following the Beatles, isn't it? Like why do that? That's right. I, who would have been on after the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan stage? I wonder, would it have been uh, the plate spinning guy? Topo Gigio. Of course. Yeah, or Topo Gigio. Yes. Yes. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us. And uh, I don't even know where to start with you, but let's, let's talk hmm. about the Canadian football league, which, uh, because a lot of people are very familiar, not only with you as a talk host, but also mm-hmm. the fact that you were with the Edmonton Eskimos. Sorry, I'm supposed to say that quieter. Edmonton oh, Eskimos. you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Anyway, <laughs> in the public and media relations capacity, how many years there for you, by the way? Uh, 14, it only feels like 30. No, it was 14 years. And okay. it was uh, started in 1998. 
uh, with David Archer and left. Uh, and I'm trying to think who the quarterback was. Was it Stephen Giles? So really, a bookend, hey? Two of the greats. You were there for the famous Segatorade tip over then. <laughs> uh, yes, I was. Yes, I was. That was my baptism by fire, watching David Archer leave the field, give the finger to the knothole gang, and then the two of us sitting in an empty uh, Eskimo dressing room and me in my first year, and I said, Dave, what do you want me to do? And he said, let them, come on, bring them in. I'll chat with them. And that, that, I think I learned media relations there very quickly from David Archer. See, Bryn, I, I mean, J-Mo's broadcast career speaks for itself, but I, I think of himself as the guy trying to handle, he's the zookeeper when it comes to the <laughs> press box. All the egos, all the characters, and we're not even talking about the players yet now. It's, That's uh, yes. you know, keep, <laughs> keeping some semblance of order uh, in the Eskimo press box, uh, some classic moments uh, inside the press box and outside of them, plus the on-the-air stuff. I guess the secret for us today is to find out how much of it we can get them to talk about. Far away, I'm usually quite forthcoming. Well, you had to deal with Jonesy who is obviously uh, Terry yep. Jones is the uh, the dean. But I don't think Jones, he was a troublemaker in that group in the press box. He was always down the front row. I was up in the back with you. But, yeah. uh, but man, it was, it was a fun group way back in the day. I, I will say this, that, and I don't want to be old guy on the front porch howling at the kids um, as they run across my lawn, but, when I was doing that job, in, you know, for the vast majority of the time there, we had, and Robin will know, all the people and all of the outlets, you had, um, you had the Sun and Journal with the two writers each coming down to cover the team. And then you had all the television outlets, you had A-Channel, and you had, uh, you know, all of the others that are still there, but all doing full sports coverage. And so, you know, you would have media availability and scrums with, you know, 10 outlets sometimes. And there was that level of interest. And then, of course, you had your national media and so on and so forth. And so, you know, it, frankly, I think that level of competition made me better at my job because I was like the guy on the Ed Sullivan show spinning plates. But, you know, people like Robin coming down and Jerry Prince and Vicki Hall and all of the people, Cam Cole in the day, they made you better at your job because even though you, you weren't working for them per se, they didn't, Cam Cole's signature wasn't on my check. I really felt like I was, you know, trying to bridge the gap or sometimes gulf between, you know, the players and the coaches of the Eskimos and the media who were there to tell a story. Now, Don Matthews told me once, he goes, look, look, if we, if we suck, and we often did when Don was our head coach, he goes, there's no way we can hide it or spin it. Just let, 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 let the process play out, bring them in, make the players available. I'll be available. Um, he was not always friendly, but he was available. And so I think that that kind of dynamic and that environment um, prompted me to be probably better than I actually was because there was a high level of competition and the expectation was high. Well, the I got to ask, Dave, now, now tell me this, and I don't know how truthful you can be. Okay. Uh, whether it was a coach or a player uh, on your end of the uh, microphone, mm-hmm. is there somebody that stands out as absolutely loathing having to do anything with the media because that was your part of your job and some guys yeah sure i got a minute no problem what do you need other guys it's like pulling teeth who are the who are the notable pulling teeth guys over the years well if i had to do a depth chart of the guys that were reluctant um i would say mike pringle goes to the top and you can ask john mckinnon about that because mike wanted to fight him after the game where mike pringle had the record and then lost it right because he was going backwards in yards and that's a whole other story we could do a ted talk on that game um but he he would be right at the top and then i would say the most loathsome individual i ever worked with was hisham el mashtub he was a center who had come from the National Football League. He was a graduate from McGill University. So Canadian who went south, he was, there was no shortage of ability there. But the moment he arrived, he was the most dislikable human being I had ever met in football. And to this day, I've never met anyone like him. He was able to divide a room in a way that I would say was, um, I mean, it was surgical at how he would go about. I mean, he was, 
he and he was the center, so I mean, he was an important, you know, to the offense. Uh, but he was he he was just horrible to deal with. I'm shocked to hear that, and the reason being is because all the dealings I've ever had with offensive linemen. They want to go under yeah. the radar. They want. They don't want to draw any attention at all. And, but they're also, and you're right on that. They're also, I think, the most introspective and articulate of all, all of the groups. You know, you, you think in receivers and running backs and all that. But offensive linemen. I mean, you know, Brandon and Robin. You guys know you've dealt with the Kevin Lapsroots and the Bruce Beatons and the Chris Morris. I mean, if you wanted uh, hilarity and jocularity, you might not get it from their corner of the room. But if you wanted insight. If you wanted to know, like, really what went down when they couldn't make a first down, they they would take you there. Like, you you would come away sort of better educated as to the process. Um, I think in, you know when you had a conversation with those guys. But great quotes, no, not necessarily. Interesting. Let's go the let's go the other way, JMO. Um, in the uh, name of uh, fair fair and equal time, sure. how about the best guys, the guys who just made your job. A pleasure. There's uh-huh. those golden guys who are or scary. Spin is or, Robin or scary because those guys who, who are the free speakers are also a problem. <laughs> yes, well, they, they they could go off script. Good for Robin's job and and bring yours as well. But I, I I know where you're going, Robin. Okay, I can I can do that one fairly. Um, I won't say easily because there were a lot of good ones. I mean, let me you know say this about my experience in 14 years. There weren't many. Guys, I mean, I have to kind of pull a Jason Armstead, you know, off to the side and say, "Look, I need you to talk about the kick return you ran back." I mean, I know you don't want to do it, but you know, for me, can you help a brother out? And they often would. But um, I, I want to refer to an incident um, that you guys—you might have even been in the stadium—and uh, I forget the year, but um, Travis Smith, the story around Travis Smith with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, he was—it was revealed that he had been—it um, was HIV positive, and he'd been playing. CFL football. So the story broke during the uh, Rick Lawlisher was my boss at the time, got a call from the commissioner, Tom Wright, in game. We we're playing the BC Lions at Commonwealth Stadium. And so I was summoned uh, to a suite to meet with Rick and, and talk with the commissioner along with my counterparts, uh, the BC Lions at the time, Diana Schultz and Debbie Butt. So we all met and we were talk- listening to the commissioner and how this story was going to come out. And so the game is going on and you've got what was a certainly a CFL story, and then it became kind of a North American sports story for a part of the cycle, um, we had to quickly figure out, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Because when the locker room door swings open, there are going to be some people that want to talk about the game, and there's going to be very many people that want to get the players' you know, instant reaction to the Travis Smith story. So the game ended, and I went inside, uh, and I asked to speak to Danny Machocha, and and just I needed his attention. I said, can I just speak to the team after you've done your breakdown and they do the prayer and all that stuff because I need to talk to the guys and get them to listen up, which is hard in a locker room of, you know, you guys know the old room, so I've got, you know, however many 50 people that are I'm trying to get their attention. Anyway, I tell them what's happened. And I went to Ed Hervey and then I went to uh, Tim Fleiser. And I did this for a couple of good reasons. One, and I, I, I mean, I'm not uh, embarrassed or ashamed to say that I, I put this kind of thought into it, as did Debbie. I took a black player in Ed Herbie. I took a white guy in Tim Fleiser. Tim Fleiser's the son of a doctor. Uh, he's uh, Harvard-educated. Ed Herbie is very enlightened, comes from Southern California, both of them articulate, and I could get them to answer the questions without um, too much emotion in terms of because we were worried, the commissioner was worried that we would have players in the, you know, in the, in the immediacy of the, hearing that news, that they would be saying things that would be inflammatory, not helpful to the situation. And both, and, and Ed and Tim were outstanding. I mean, I just sort of got them off to the side and they, you know, were able to process the information quickly, give what I thought was a very reasoned response. So, you know, those two guys, Sean Fleming was gold. And I know you, people might say, well, the kicker, well, the kicker, you know, they miss them and they make them. And and he never shied away when he missed them. Um, he didn't, you know, gloat or anything when he made a, a kick that won a game or was important. Um, but he was always somebody. Doug Peterson was another guy that I know both of you guys have dealt with over the years. Really articulate. 
um, uh, just an absolutely uh, game-busting defensive lineman whose career was too short. But Doug was always always had he, he always brought intelligence to his interactions with the media. What do you think, Brent? I got a question here, follow up, and I'm, I kid, I kid. Did somebody stop Pringle from beating up McKinnon? What? How? how you know? How did... <laughs> I'll tell you the backstory. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, um, here, here's what happened that night. So guys, guys, we have to tell people who John McKinnon yes. is because this isn't yeah. just an Edmonton thing we're doing here, boys. That's true. And Robin, you do the honors there. Uh, he was a columnist at the Edmonton Journal. He went from being uh, the sports editor uh, at the Edmonton Journal. And one of the reasons I was amenable to moving to the sun. Um, and then he uh, became a columnist. And uh, he would get under people's skin for one reason or another. He, uh, he was efficient at his job. A lot of people will remember him uh, getting... John McKinnon was the guy who got Oilers... Uh, Kevin Lowe to go off and uh, spout the uh, multi-tier. F- oh, I know. I know a thing or two about winning. That was the great quote. So John could get under your skin. That was his job as a columnist. There you go. Okay. Uh, so that night in question, uh, the Eskimos are playing the, the Calgary Stampeders. It's the Labor Day rematch. And Mike Pringle is, is right on the precipice of, of breaking George Reed's record. And so, um, we are ready. We, and I say we, my assistant at the time, Jamie Cartmel and I, we've got, and the club has prepared this beautiful glass etching. Now it's uh, down on the field on an easel. Like we are in the full ready position that once this thing happens, this glorious event, we will down tools, stop the game. TSN will give it all the pomp and circumstance you might imagine. And we'll present this to a tearful Mike whose son is, uh, uh, Isaiah is standing on the sidelines. It's a bitterly cold night. Anyhow, the game is prog- and the game is progressing, and Mike's getting yards. I mean, there's no secret as to what the Eskimos. It's Pringle right, Pringle left, Pringle up the middle, and we're going to get this thing done. Well, the Calgary Stampeders are losing. I think Matt Dunigan was their coach, and so all they did was fill the box as the game went on and Mike couldn't get any yardage. Like there was nothing happening. In fact, he was losing it. So he, he had it at one point and then it starts to go backwards and you're seeing the yardage, you know, slide the wrong way. So the game ends and Mike is livid because he is, um, he, they, you know, failed to get him, uh, across the, the goal line. I think it was a, a goal line stand or something. Anyhow, game ends and he is furious. Like, he is inconsolable. The team goes into the locker room, but Mike chooses to stay in the back and sob with a towel over his head on the treadmill. Back in the old weight room is really small. And so I go in there, like, I, I you know, go in with the team and get all the people sort of at the regular stalls and the reporters are doing their, getting their stuff, except Mike Pringle's the game story. The Eskimos have won, but Mike Pringle is the game story. Mike knows that. So he is sobbing, and I can't speak to him. He's hiding under the towel. I can see his shoulder shaking. And Lawlisher, Rick Lawlisher, comes in the room. He goes, what's going on? And I, I, I point to this sobbing guy in yellow mud-stained pants and cleats. And, and Rick comes over, and um, I guess the former captain of the Oil Kings, who knew a thing or two about getting people to do things they didn't want to do, said, come on, Mike, grow up. Let's go. So I'm standing there, and Mike springs up, throws the towel off, and all but runs to his locker, where he is greeted by John McKinnon and others. What follows is an exchange, because I'm running around the corner trying to keep up with Pringle. I arrive as somebody, some offensive linemen are, Jamo, get in here. And I'm coming around the corner, to which Mike Pringle is, like, they've separated McKinnon from Pringle good things are not about to happen. So we get Mike calm down. We get whatever John needs, what everybody else needs. And, you know, at that point, Joey's vacuuming the, the locker room. We're trying to get out of there, but we're still hanging around with, with Mike Pringle. Well, the next day, he calls me, Pringle, and he, I can tell you that I'm not sure Mike was a big fan of yours truly. I mean, any interaction we had was usually kind of tense. And he said, how, how bad is it? And I said, well, Mike, it wasn't a good look for you to try and punch a reporter. And he goes, okay. And I said, 
can I ask you why, I mean, you were upset, but he goes, I really wanted to do it for Isaiah. And I said, your son, right? He goes, yeah, my son. I said, Mike, how about we do this? When you come into the locker room today, I'm going to gather the media. You're going to have, you know, a cold glass of water. You're going to be composed. We're going to take some time. And you're going to recount that story of Isaiah. Okay. Now, it's not going to make the McKinnon thing go away, but it's going to give some context. And I mean, I hate to be so shameless about it, but it was one of those, if you got something in the arsenal, man, use it. And so he did. And, it, you know, it softened the edges. And trust me, he had enough edges. He couldn't soften them all. But it was one of those exchanges, you know, looking back on it. That, um, but, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fraught night, fraught with tension. I got to ask this question. Uh because we're going through a year now where we're not seeing the Canadian Football League. Does mm-hmm. it come back, Dave, after this? I'm pausing because my answer is I hope so. Mm-hmm. But my the other part of my answer is I'm not confident. When you go dark, when you go dark at any time in terms of your, your product, your business, whatever it may be, a restaurant, a dry cleaner, whatever, and you go away for a while, and I'm not talking about a two-week vacation where you put the thing in the window to say, you know, I'll be back in two. You run the real risk. It's certainly in 2020 and beyond. Uh, and I would say this even pre-pandemic is when you go dark, you get forgotten. And the Canadian Football League is not in a position where, I mean, unlike hockey, which has been stopped, you know, through labor stoppages and so on, um, it, it never goes away. I don't know about you guys, but the Canadian Football League has for all intents and purposes, gone away. And that troubles me. I mean, I, I don't expect them to make news daily. But there is radio silence about this league. And that really concerns me because people will move on. I mean, they, you know, you saw the attendance in Edmonton. It's been declining and eroding for a number of years. I know that there are still hot spots around the CFL. But there's also some really serious trouble spots. The BC Lions. Who knows what the new ownership in Montreal is going to be able to affect? Hamilton is strong. Winnipeg coming off a breakup. They're in, you know, probably going to be able to come back fairly cleanly. But, you know, close to home and, and with Edmonton, it's not a snap your fingers and ta-da, we're back. To me, it's, it's, it, you're going to have to work to rebuild interest. And that was, that's the big thing. I mean, there are people of my age who are going to wander back to CFL stadiums because it's what we do. It's been part of our lives. But if you were somebody that was just starting to maybe get um, a sense of what this league was about uh, and, and, you know, build some sort of affinity for it, and now it's gone, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm not confident. I'm, I, I, I remain hopeful because I think that's a better place to be as a human being, but I'm not confident. Well, well Dave, it, it, it's interesting that you say that. I, I look at the league, and I see a league where not only has it been dark for an entire season – and you lose that continuity, you lose that connection. But we've got Vancouver is struggling, uh, you know, big football city in the past, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest market uh, in the CFL, uh, Toronto. They don't give a damn about the CFL overall. It's uh, secondary. It's uh, football fans are largely NFL fans. They move to a different stadium that's more suitable. They still can't get any more than family and friends in there. And you look at a place like Edmonton, where for so long it was considered a flagship franchise. To me, um, maybe this is too strong, but it's been running to the ground a little bit over the last, oh, I don't know, five to seven years. Winning solves a lot of things, but there's some things that have happened. Uh, the way of doing things seems to have changed. I wasn't here for the golden era of the Eskimos. I got to Edmonton in 89, but I've seen how it's supposed to look, and it hasn't looked that way for a long time. So there's a whole bunch of questions right now. Oh, Robin, I couldn't agree more, and, and I don't think the term run into the ground is necessarily incorrect. Um, you know, is it still, do they still have lots of money in the coffers? Yeah, we're you know, based on the last annual general meeting and the annual report, sure, that, you know, it, 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 they're not what they once were. And I understand that businesses and, and, and teams will go through ebbs and flows. Um, but it just feels like it's not even close to what it once was. And I'm not, it's not to say that, you know, that when I was there, that we always nailed it, but I always got the feeling at least we were trying. And I, I, I don't feel that anymore when it comes to that franchise. 
I have to jump in on this one because my last six months with the Edmonton Oilers, I had the privilege, and I'll use the word privilege, of having an office right next door to one of the founding fathers of the World Hockey Association in Bill Hunter. And Bill always told me that he would rather see negative press than no press. And Randy Ambrosi has gone down this uh, has gone down this road of basically shutting everything down. We're not hearing anything about the Canadian Football League. But Dave, you've also gone down the same road as me. Would you rather hear negative stories than nothing? Absolutely, of course. I mean, you know, if, if those start to build up, and you are, you know, the equivalent of the Washington Football Team, let's say, well, yeah, then that can erode at the brand, but. Look, if you come off a bad loss, live it, deal with it, and then show up the next day and deal professionally with the media and and on you go, right? I think that, you know, there are standards certainly that I try to adhere to. A lot of those were sort of handed down or passed on by the Hugh Campbells and the Dwayne Mandrusiaks and the the people that were there long before me. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with Bill Hunter. I'm with you, Bryn, that, you know, let's say Robin comes in and, and writes a piece. Um, that is not entirely flattering. I'd rather have that than Robin writing a piece about something else in town and, and skipping over whatever we may be doing because it's the cumulative effect of, of the words and the visuals and all of the stuff that's working hopefully at the same time in the marketplace that creates awareness and hopefully interest that will drive a, a sale of a ticket. So to your point, and you know, again, I go back to the late Don Matthews who you know, we, we worked together two years, but I, I learned a great deal at the feet of Don uh, um, in terms of, you know, just like how um, how the rhythm of football season is not always going to be perfect. And it certainly was true on that. Um, and you're going to just kind of have to deal with her. It's going to eat you up. Dave, one thing that strikes me, and I can't get off it because it's been a while now, but I think it's still on a lot of people's minds and maybe I don't know if reading too much into it as an indicator of the Dwayne Mandrusiak thing. You mentioned him. Mm -hmm. I get it that things are tough all over. I get it that man, there's nothing to do right now, but I always thought, and I wasn't even there close to day one for Dwayne, but just in my dealings with him, when you're looking at a 50th season at some point, um, and the time he spent with the football club, to me, he should be the last man standing. When somebody turns out the lights on a season or on a career, it should be up to Dwayne. And do you have to pay a guy for a year where he's not doing much? Well, fine. But how do you, that just doesn't happen 20 years ago with Dwayne Mandrusiak, does it? Or am I off base here? No, you're not off base at all. There are ways to look, and to your, you know, the point at the beginning there um, about understanding that you know things, times are very tough, and that you know change, uh, change is going to come. Let's say uh, there had to have been a way that you allow that individual to have their fifty. I'm sorry, and I'll refer back to, and I'm not equating, you know, I, I had left the club, but when Matthew Bertrand leaves, and there's not even a, a, a release that that really says thank you for your time. Adarius Bowman got a line on the end of a release of some other player signings. And I'm sorry, you may be delivering bad news if it's in the case of a player who's either leaving or retiring or whatever. Um, There is a way, it doesn't cost any money to celebrate that individual. Now, to Dwayne's case specifically, you can't tell me that um, that something couldn't have been put in place. Look, you know, we'll, we'll have you do ambassadorial work if you want until we're back. And then when you're back in May, let's, let's call it May that they start training camp and they get, well, even though it's earlier than that for Dwayne getting ready, we will have someone in place. So at the end of the 50th season, we can transition and off we go. That's an orderly transition. It's also humane, if, if I may, like that, that, that seems to me. And it, again, it doesn't cost very much money. I just can't visualize Dwayne and Punter, one of the mascots, going out to read in week at schools, though, Dave. As much as I love Dwayne. What, I, well, those kids would have some amazing oh. stories. That they, you know, some might not be sufficient for school or 
suitable for school. But yeah, it, it, and that's, you know, you, you could imagine him going sweet to sweet and talking to people on game days and, and pressing the flesh and all the stuff that, you know, you see uh, uh, with organizations where the alumni are um, welcomed to do that. They're, they're encouraged to do that. And there's a role for them. I mean, that to me would seem fairly easy to do. Well, at least the Edmonton Eskimos haven't botched up a 50-50 draw. If I can be really heartless for a brief moment. And it's not too soon for that. Hey, uh, and uh, one other thing, too, uh, regarding the Canadian Football yep. League is uh, our good friend Rod Peterson last week threw it out there that perhaps Edmonton might be a great locale for a bubble if they're going to try to squeeze a season in. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess in the absence of somebody better, I mean, Edmonton's got the track record that nobody else other than Toronto, and they're not going to do a CFL season in Toronto, he thinks. But, um, it, it, I mean, it's there are a few things in place, obviously. Commonwealth Stadium, the size of it, you could safely space fans. Uh, you have Clark Stadium right next door, which would allow practice, you know, opportunities for other teams. Um, you know, there's enough here. There's enough infrastructure and I think enough community horsepower to do something like that. I hope it doesn't have to go to that. I mean, really, these are teams, this is a league that has to be out in front of its public. I mean, to say it's gate-driven is stating the painfully obvious. Um, you know, whether or not there's much credence to that idea, I don't know. The, the Winnipeg um, hub... Uh, model didn't last for very long and then it was shut down, right? I mean, it was, it's going to require whatever, whatever way they go is going to require both, you know, a great deal of financial muscle where that comes from. I don't know, because I know some of the owners are obviously right up against it and they probably feel like they've spent enough. So again, if the CFL, the theme should be, we're crossing our fingers. That should be the 2021. We've got our fingers crossed. Maybe we play some football. Dave, how do we get beyond crossing our fingers, though? Um, how do you reestablish that connection? I honestly believe there's a place for the CFL. Yeah, it's down the pecking order in some cities. I get that. Yeah, it's down the pecking order for a lot of fans from the NFL. But I think there's a place for this league. But whether it's leadership at the top or something as simple as how do the shoestring budget clubs survive and bounce back in a meaningful way. Um, how do we get to where there's the good old CFL again? Or is there such thing as the good old CFL anymore? I'm inclined to think, Robin, you know, here, here's the thing. The good old CFL exists during Grey Cup week, right? But that is not the season itself. And both you guys are nodding because I know you both darken the doorway of the spirit of Edmonton. That is... In that week, in that room, in those party rooms, that is what the CFL at its very best is. It's kind of a connective tissue, and I don't want to get all, you know, misty-eyed at this, but it's kind of a connective tissue for the country for a few days in late November. That's a good thing. It's the it's Canada's biggest kitchen party, and they play a football game at the end that may or may not be good. All of that's fun. All of that's important on a level. But it's what are you doing the 18 weeks before you get to all of the good stuff? And does, does it still matter enough? And look, all sports are challenged in how people are consuming them. All sports and, and the CFL, I, again, I use the term, does it have the horsepower to make the, the significant changes that are going to be required in terms of what it provides to fans, how it relates to Gen Z or whoever any, everybody is chasing? And it can't just be, we can't just default to, well, if they get a video game, that'll be it. They're so far past that, that that it's on to something else, whether it's in-stadium gambling and wagering to, I mean, you know, again, I pay fairly close attention to the business landscape of sports. And, and, and the CFL, as I see today, is not, 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 not even close to getting in that game. Let's talk about our good friend Ed Hervey, who stepped down this week as the general manager of the British Columbia Lions. Is that okay? I, I, it sounds like it's a family issue, and we all go through yeah. that. And it was as we get older, family's got to come. It should come first always. But when you get yeah, a little but, older, you gotta you gotta make sure your priorities are bang on. And I just want to make sure that Ed, who we all like, mm-hmm. is is okay. And I'm guessing that you've got some contacts out in British Columbia 
they could probably just uh, tell us a little bit about that without getting too much yeah, in detail. It, it, no, and when you see personal reasons, personal circumstances, you know, I think there's a bit of a firewall that should go up and, yep. and must go up around that. But my understanding is that there, you know, um, that there are some family health things to deal with, and he's got, you know, I, I'm sure like a lot of people trying to navigate that with a family that's in Los Angeles um, with, you know, a mother who's aging and, and all of that stuff is a lot to carry. Remember, you know, and both you guys know Ed's story well. I mean, from a very young age, he was the man of the house. Yeah. He's had to support both emotionally and financially. And then as he went through his playing career, I know that, you know, he was he was really running I mean, he was the, 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 the ballast to keep everything together. And so, um, you know, as, as I will say repeatedly, the CFL is better for having Ed Hervey in it. You just hope that, you know, when he's in it and if he's able to return, that he does it, you know, with good health and, and he's able to do so, um, you know, I will say easily. But you know what I'm saying, without some of the, the pressures that may be coming to bear on him right now. Well, yeah, exa- exactly, uh, Dave. I mean. Ed was in a great position out there as GM, mixed results in the first couple of years, but Mike Riley out there, and now Rick Campbell out there, uh, Lala Shure out there. He's got the start of something so that you know that if he steps away from it, um, he's looking at the bigger picture and there's a yep. real good reason why he's chosen to step away at this time. Yeah, th- this would have been like anybody in a position where they have to step away for health or whatever reason um, would have weighed heavily. And, you know, I've, I've exchanged one very, very brief message and, and, you know, we just thanked for the concern and I wouldn't expect any more. And he's a very private person. So, you know, when he emerges again, wherever maybe, um, I'm sure he's going to do exceptionally well because the guy is, you know, and I've known him since 1999 and, and he's, um, uh, he's all that and more in terms of his intelligence, his abilities, and, and you'd like to see him in, in a real good place. We're up against the clock. You've got a show to do, and we've got to carry on as well. I'm shocked and happy, happily shocked that we've talked about the Canadian Football League so much today. That's great. But we've got to get you back on again, okay? Okay, I'd love to. This has been great. Thanks, guys. Hey, Robin, we, we have to briefly talk about Mike Emmerich and what a great career Doc had doing play-by-play for NBC Sports. If you get a chance to check them out on Twitter, it's at NHL on NBC Sports. One of the things that Doc had a chance to do in announcing his retirement was do an essay. I think it's great stuff, and I, I normally don't like to do this. I think there's copyright issues on it, too, but I, I don't care on this. Doc is such a great guy, Robin, that it's important that we uh, let him basically sum up what a great career he had. To the many who love this sport, it was 50 years ago this fall with pen and pad in hand at Old Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, I got my first chance to cover the National Hockey League. That was Mike Emmerich. 14 teams. Gordie Howe was a Red Wing. Bobby Hall was a Blackhawk. Bobby Orr was a Bruin. All three went to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Gordie Howe's son, Mark, and Bobby Hall's son, Brett, did too. At that time, there were still scoreboard clocks with sweep hands and a lot of players with good bare right hands. Time passed. Rosters expanded. The league did too. Now 32 franchises. Although I've decided to put down the play-by-play headset mic at NBC, and they have graciously allowed me to do some essays like this in the future, a time like this makes me recall that we have seen a lot together. Snowy day, celebration of hockey in Buffalo. Not all of our games had a roof. Here comes Crosby. 12 years ago in Buffalo, there was the first replay through clouds from a plane. 21 seconds in. And later, a winning goal through snow flurry. Score! Penguins win! Then six years later, two original six teams, Detroit and Toronto, and the biggest crowd ever, over 105,000 at Michigan Stadium. Trying to win it. And another shootout. He's 
five years later, hearing the famous victory march at Notre Dame, and two more original Sixers, Boston and Chicago, walking over that fabled gridiron. We saw some Olympics, too. Zach Parise out of the netball scramble! A decade ago, a gold medal game that required overtime between the two North American powers in Vancouver. Crosby scores! The gold medal to Canada! And four years later, in a memorable game in Sochi, when the home team Russians saw an American named T.J. Oshie score four times in a shootout, score! including the clincher. I don't know about you, but I still get chills seeing the Stanley Cup. And knowing how professionals paid well during the season, forget everything, and raise pain thresholds above broken jaws, black eyes, stitches, and a lot we can't see to win a title and get the name their parents gave them engraved on this trophy. Oh, sure, things change over the 50 years. When I arrived, helmets were optional and then required of new players. Visors were optional and then required of new players. We went from one referee to two. Goal judges once sat in chairs behind the net. Now video replay helps make those calls. We have a goal on the ice. But much of what I love, perhaps what you love, is unchanged from then to now and into the years ahead. I love that coaches still yell and arguments can happen. I love that goalies can occasionally still score goals. That sentiment can't enter even into what number a player wears or gives up. That banners, like jerseys, aren't just cloth. They represent sacrifice. I love that when fans pay the price of admission, in addition to the game, they can get to see kids get a lifetime memory, get to see one of their number experience joy, or get to be in on a surprise reunion of someone serving the country. And speaking of that, to have those who have served on the ice when the anthem is sung, I never tire of that, do you? And I especially love when the horn sounds and one playoff team has won and another, of course, hasn't. All hostility dissolves into that timeless, great display of sportsmanship, the handshake line. 60 years since I saw my first game, 50 years since I first reported on the NHL, 40 years of calling NHL games, and I am always heartened to see this. I hope these days find you well. We are well here. In the meantime, I will be at home with Joyce and the pups. It's a circus. And perhaps in the future, I will have something to share with you, but hoping you can stay safe for now. And like me, watch for the start of next season. I leave you with sincere thanks. Your hockey friend, Doc. What a wonderful summary on the career of Mike Emmerich, Doc Emmerich from NBC Sports. 47 seasons of calling pro hockey. Unbelievable story. And as great a broadcaster as he was, he's a better person. And that's uh, and, and a 19-year survivor from cancer, which is mm-hmm. another huge thing. So uh, we're all very worried about him 19 years ago. He's a fighter. Well, I tell you what, one of those benchmark guys, Bryn, we know a lot of them from our years around uh, sports. Uh, the guys in Canada, you know, there's neither the Bob Cools of the world. Well, Mike Emmerich is that guy uh, south of the border. Uh, terrific broadcaster for a very long time and a terrific man, at least every time I saw him. You know what I liked is anytime you had a chance to chat with him, and for me, maybe three or four times over my career, mm-hmm. But I always felt better after I talked to him. And I think that that's a real secret to being a great person is when you can feel like you had a great conversation with somebody, that they cared about the conversation, and they made yeah. you feel good about things. And he was one of those guys and will continue to be that kind of guy. He's still going to do essay work like we just heard 
And I think mm-hmm. from an NBC perspective, that's pretty fantastic. Hey, before we go, The Outsiders is brought to you by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. Brent McIntosh and his group are there waiting for you to give them a call. Most people know that in a normal year, it's the spring when most of the real estate transactions occur. And now here we are in the fall, so it's a little quieter. It's a good time to be thinking about what you want to do. Edmonton saw record-setting months for sales during the summer. Brent can explain to you exactly how that works, even though things are a little quieter, but things are selling pretty fast generally, but there's less inventory than there has been in the past few years. He can break it down for you as much as you uh, as much as you want. He's got stats, and he's got a great group working over there for him as well. And if you would like to get some more information on the market, and maybe you want to see a sold sticker out in front of your place on the front lawn, then reach out to Brent and the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. They'd love to provide you with some great advice on selling your home. And also a couple of sold stickers for that front lawn of yours as well. You can find them at mackintoshgroup.ca or you can give them a shout at 780-464-0075. I'm also now doing a podcast with Brent, which is refer. And if you want to check it out on any of the traditional sites like Apple or Spotify, Google Podcasts, that kind of thing. It's real simple. It's called Just Sold with Brent McIntosh. So go to the podcast, and every week we uh, try to highlight a little bit of, uh, well, we'll try to give you some helpful information on uh, on house sales and realty and that kind of thing. So check in. Your support uh, is uh, greatly appreciated, Brent, to you and everybody over there, and uh, we want to thank you for coming online. So once again, you can find them at macintoshgroup.ca or 780 464 zero zero seven five that's kind of it today and it's a little longer show than usual dave jameson thank you for coming on it was a blast and i guess we're ready for a world series now robin yeah a little baseball starting uh what tomorrow night and uh yeah looking forward to it let's see what the bums can do in this one and uh off we go all right robin talk to you next week you shall was recorded earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.